Hi, I'm Andrew J. Boyle. Welcome to North by Norway. In the summer of 1887, the Norwegian writer Johan Berg travelled by ferry from his hometown of Bergen deep into the fjord country. He steamed up the spectacular Hardangefjord and disembarked at its innermost point, the village of Odda. He was perplexed on the crowded steamer to note that he was one of very few Norwegians and when he got to the Hardanger Hotel in Odda, the sense of being a foreigner in his own country continued. He wrote, One could immediately see that this was a building created for a specific purpose. At the usual country hotels, an extension or two has been stuck on as an afterthought in response to the growth in tourism. And those old places never seemed to be either comfortable or solidly constructed. But here, at the Hardanger Hotel, there was a buzz and a fuss in all the corridors, and on the long verandas a prattle in English, boys running with suitcases, electric bells ringing, and the serving girls in local Hardanger costumes moving through this hubbub as quickly and quietly as would professional hotel staff. As is the English custom, dinner will be served at seven o'clock, followed by a cup of tea, after which the guests will take their strolls in the mild August evening on the road between the houses, and it will be as lively as along any large promenade. The Englishmen appear to be in their own element, in their own order where they know they are at the centre of everything. Tourism is a huge industry in Norway today. It accounts for seven out of every hundred jobs. There are around 35 million overnight stays a year, accounting for about 4.5% of BNP. In the last ten years, the contribution by foreign tourists to these numbers has almost doubled and international visitors now account for over 30% of tourism in Norway. So which countries send most visitors? Today the top five are Germany, Sweden, USA, Denmark, Great Britain. And it was one of these five that had by far the most credit in opening up Norway as a holiday destination. And today I thought, we could take a look back at the surprising way in which tourism developed here. There's an old mountain anecdote that Norwegians like to tell. The story goes that one summer day around 1860, a sheep farmer and his son are out looking for their flock in a valley between the peaks of Jotunheimen. They've wandered all morning on separate paths, but at midday come together to share some pipe tobacco and some bread. As they sit in the heather, the younger man suddenly nudges his father and points to the uppermost ridge of the valley opposite. 
A man? It must be. Tweed suit, bulging leather rucksack, walking stick. He's coming down the scree, jumping from loose boulder to loose boulder, choosing the most precipitous route, a goat trail, if any at all. The old man takes the pipe from his mouth and shakes his head. Huh? Hunting head on speaking a garland. Elder so at on Englishman. He's completely lost his mind. Either that or he's English. The wonderful fishing rivers of Norway had been discovered by the British aristocracy in the early 1800s, and no one else was there. In summers, they had the run of the rivers pretty much to themselves. But with the explosion of the middle class in Britain around the middle of the century, coinciding with the railway revolution, people were moving around and moving abroad, looking for fresh air and diversion. The Grand Tour, much loved by the British aristocracy in the 17th and 18th centuries, is a well-known chapter of tourist history. Now it was the newly rich mercantile class that travelled south to Greece and Italy with their train tickets and packaged itinerary. The Alps, hugely popular of course, to these souls of the Romantic era. But for many there was also a special wonder in travelling north, the magnetism of the wilds of Norway. Instead of their industrialised hometowns, instead of the flocks of packaged tourists, instead of the dizzying heat of the med, they sought cool air, clean air, and the majesty of open space. And there was so much, well, space. If we take a round number, let's say the year 1900, there were a little over two million people living in Norway. Two million. In England, Scotland and Wales, 37 million. And this on a landmass considerably smaller than Norway. Well, we heard that author Johann Berg from Bergen felt like a foreigner in his own backyard in 1887. His impression is backed up by the list of guests who stayed at one Bergen hotel that same summer. From Norway came 119 visitors, mostly in town on business. From Germany, Australia, Denmark, Holland, Russia and Cuba, there came a further 27 guests. So from all of these places, 146 people. And from Britain, 559 Yep, the British dominated the new tourism industry. And, in fact, they had created it. So it was perhaps not surprising that Johann Berg saw them parading about in mountain villages as if they owned the place. After all, the well-educated Englishman at this time was the lifeblood of the British Empire and carried his sense of cultural superiority with him everywhere he went. One such traveller was Joseph Pythian. After his visit to Norway in the 1870s, he wrote this. I felt it an honour to belong to England, for the name Englishman is rather grander than that of Roman. 
We scarcely realize this at home, but in a distant land, looking some way more broadly upon the world, the fact has more significance. The feeling is not that I, as an individual, am above these other people, but that my country, of which I am part, is above theirs. Surely Norway has been made as a playground for the people of other countries, but especially for Englishmen. Even as late as 1904, the great Yorkshire mountaineer Cecil Slingsby wrote a book detailing his conquest of Norwegian peaks and gave it the title The Northern Playground. Frederick Metcalf, an Anglican vicar, journeyed through Telemark in 1856. The avidity with which books of travel in primitive countries, whether in the tropics or under the pole, are now read, shows that the more refined a community is, the greater interest it will take in the occupation, the sentiments, the manners of people still in a primitive state of existence. Outside the towns, accommodation was provided on farms, which also doubled as posting stations. Many British travellers were forced to concede that the primitive farmers of Norway showed none of the servile attitude they were used to back home. The absence of a feudal past in Norway meant that farm owners were a class of proud and independent people. And when British tourists came face to face with Norway's flattened class structure, it made them insecure. They could struggle to find a suitable tone to adopt when addressing peasants who regarded themselves as the social equals of Englishmen. In many travel accounts, the author expresses astonishment that the farmer is not in the service of an aristocratic landowner but is his own lord and master. One English traveller offered this advice to compatriots. It is advisable to treat every Norwegian, however low in the social scale, with the utmost courtesy, as they are very independent and do not relish being ordered about. As for the station-keepers and their families, well, the best plan is to treat them not as hotel-keepers, but as your host, and to ask everything as a favour and demand nothing as a right. After a good night's sleep at the Hardanger Hotel, 
Johann Berg went out the next morning to catch the ferry again, and was astonished to see the English tourists getting ready for a trip up to a local glacier, and he writes, For the sake of this jaunt, each of them had acquired all the equipment of a mountaineer, including an ice axe. They looked as if they were going to conquer Mont Blanc, and made their farewells as if they were leaving civilization for a good fortnight. Other English tourists were getting ready for an excursion to a local waterfall, and Berg notices that, sticking out of their many pockets, which had been attached to the most unexpected parts of their costume, were travel guides, maps, tobacco, fire steel, and God knows what else. They looked as if they were going fishing in the wilds of the Arctic, but they carried it all off without a trace of self-consciousness. It wasn't only the Norwegians who were amused at the empire builders. The Irish-American writer J. Ross Brown has left us this exhaustive description. He was, incidentally, an adventurer and lived in many parts of North America, which I hope explains his wandering American accents. My English friends were so well provided with funds and equipment that they found it impossible to get ready. They had patent tents, sheets, bedsteads, mattresses, and medicine boxes. They had guns, too, in handsome gun cases, and compasses and chronometers and pocket editions of the poets. They had portable kitchens packed in tin boxes, which they emptied out but never could get in again, comprising a general assortment of pots, pans, kettles, skillets, frying pans, knives and forks, and pepper castors. They had demijohns of brandy and cakes. Ross Brown's wine. book is called In the Land of Thor. Of it's well worth a read. By the gallon, and French mustard in patent pots. Likewise, collodium for healing bruises, and mosquito nets for keeping out snakes. They had improved oil lamps to assist the daylight, which prevails in this latitude during the 24 hours, and shaving apparatus and nail brushes and cold cream for cracked lips and dentifrice for the teeth, and patent preparations for the removal of dandruff from the head. I'll put a link to Ross Brown's book on the webpage. One of them carried a theodolite for drawing inaccessible mountains within a reasonable distance. Another, a photographic apparatus for taking likenesses of the natives and securing facsimiles of the wild beasts. They had bags, boxes and bales of crackers, preserved meats, vegetables... We'll leave him to get on with that. For the tourist accustomed to a comfortable urban life, the proximity of the wilderness was exotic. Wolf pelts and bearskins were sold at post stations in mountain areas. Far less exotic was the food served at the farms, usually consisting of bread, milk, cheese and fish, with meat gradually becoming more frequent. But vegetables were scarce. Travellers often commented on the admirable cleanliness of the farms and post stations. This hygiene was, however, 
on a sliding scale. The further into the mountains one explored, the less one could expect. In 1893, the composer Edward Grieg was up in Jutenheimen, the home of the giants, and he came home with an irritating skin rash. Oh yes, the home of the giants is beautiful, he thundered in a letter. But it is also a pigsty. My affliction was caused by the beds of the giants. In the last decades of the century, splendid tourist hotels sprang up at the principal junctions to cater to the tastes and demands of tourists, who, increasingly as the century wore on, were also Norwegian. 1868 saw the start of Den Norske Turistforening, that's the Norwegian Trekking Association, and in the course of a few years the first mountain lodges had been established. Today there are over 500. As the country opened up to visitors, well-off Germans also arrived in ever-growing numbers, making for quite a bit of competition with the Britons. The English composer Frederick Delius was travelling in the mountains in 1908 together with the conductor Thomas Beecham. At one lodge he wrote a letter to his wife. The Germans take entire possession of the sitting room and begin straight away to play the piano and sing in chorus German folk songs and student songs. Wherever we arrive, they're at the piano and never stop. I'm trying to work, but really I must stop. They're hammering away at the damned instrument. With the First World War and the shake-up of social structures in Europe, the patterns of tourism in Norway changed. Norwegians would never again be outnumbered by foreign visitors. A few years ago, I took the train from Oslo to Bergen with my partner Sonja. At the highest point of the journey, Finse, we got off for a few hours. Finse is in the middle of a wilderness of ice and snow, and consists of only a couple of lodges and a train station. Robert Falcon Scott came here to try out his equipment before leaving for the Antarctic. The lodge was closed when we arrived, but we'd arranged that the caretaker would let us in, as we wanted to look through the hotel guest lists from 1913 for that was when Sonia's grandparents had met at this lodge. A lot of the signatures in the guestbook were of Englishmen, a lot of them were of Germans, including those of Vice Admiral Reinhard Scheer and his wife. Just three years later, Scheer would lead his fleet against the British at the Battle of Jutland, the largest naval battle in history to that date. Next time on North by Norway, I'll be looking at the way the Second World War affected the cultural life of Norway. 
Cancel culture ain't a nothing new. In the meantime, if you like the cool north, tell all your cool friends. In addition to all these, they had patent overcoats and undercoats, patent hats and patent boots. Oh, J. Ross Brown is getting near the end of his list of things which well-prepared English travellers have with them to Norway. ...useful in foreign countries by gentlemen of the British islands who go abroad to... ...rough it. This was Roughing It with a Vengeance. <laughs>